Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Well, tonight, one of our favorite guests of all time returns, Dr. Robert Schock, Ph.D., or we used to call it in the Beatles, Foot, Dr. Foot. This is Dr. Schock's 18th appearance on 21st Century Radio, starting in 1991, when he joined us for his first radio interview, breaking the news that Weathering patterns on the Sphinx indicate it was built by a civilization much older than dynastic Egypt. Dr. Robert Schock is a tenured faculty member at Boston University and earned his doctorate in geology and geophysics at Yale University in 1983, known for his research on ancient civilizations. He is the author of numerous books, including Origins of the Sphinx, the co-author on this book is his wife, Catherine Ulysses, a 20-year ballet and Broadway dance veteran who earned her B.A. from Emerson College in 2002, and they've been married since 2010. She enjoys contributing to his research while teaching her art, formerly for Harvard University's dance program and, more recently, Wellesley College. Together... They have released through Inner Traditions International Publishing a revised and expanded new edition of their book called Forgotten Civilization that we will be talking about tonight, both hours tonight. We first interviewed Robert on his this book in 2013, but since then his collaborative work with his wife Katie has grown even more close and thus, as Robert says in an author's note, it was only fitting that she be given credit for all that she has contributed, as this book is truly a product of our joint efforts, end quote. The title page now carries the authorship of Robert M. Schock, Ph.D., or Foode, with Catherine Ulysses at his insistence. Way to go, Robert. This reminds me of my partnership with my own wife, my beloved Dr. Queen Zahara, who contributes to my research in so many ways, sharing her depth of understanding of the Kabbalah, animal spirits, and the science of consciousness. 
Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Robert Schock. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think um, wives, just just to follow that theme, um, our partners for life, our wives, are often so important. And um, I think everyone, you know, that needs to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. It works both ways. Spouses, I should say. Spouses. That's for sure. important. And it's also been, I, I, you're right, I didn't realize it's been 18 times that I've been on the show. Amazingly, 18 times. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> uh, I do remember and uh, that it was just, I think we're within a couple of weeks maybe of 30 years since I first came on the show. That's correct, yeah. We're, yeah. we're headed towards 40. but we, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> we may not be here for 40. But we, but we but we will be somewhere else. That's for sure. We will be, yes. Well, I like to stay with this note about your collaborative authorship for just a minute. You retained the original dedication to your book that reads, "I love these dedications. I dedicate this book to my beloved wife, Catherine Katie Ulysses. She has truly been the inspiration and driving force behind it, as is evident by the pages that follow. This book could not have been written without her. Of course, we mentioned that before. Now, would you please describe for us?" some of Katie's contributions on locations such as Easter Island or Gobekli Tepe or New Grange or Noth or India, any of those? You know, something that Katie is really good at is pointing out connections and pointing out, uh, you know, how should I say it? She, I'm an academic, I'm, and I don't mean that in a terribly bad way. I don't mean that in a bad way at all. But I am trained in sort of a very academic paradigm, and she has helped me open up even further. I think I've always been open-minded. That's one reason John Anthony West, he liked to joke that I was an open-minded scientist. But she's helped me open up even further and make connections and see things, because often we do not see things if we're not trained to see them, if we're not looking for them. They can be so obvious. So I will give you the uh, classic, what I think is now the classic example, and we talk about this in the book at length. That is the Rongo Rongo script of Easter Island. So Dr. Anthony Parat at Los Alamos National Laboratory has been studying for, I want to say, over 20 years now, high-energy plasma physics that you see in the universe, that you see from the sun. This is electrically charged particles that are given off by solar, uh, you know, the sun and solar-type objects, when I say that, stars, etc. And something he has modeled in the laboratory is that when the sun undergoes a major solar outburst, and this is one of the primary themes, as you well know, in Forgotten Civilization, how solar activity influences Earth and influences the civilization of Earth with various solar outbursts and uh, uh, coronal mass ejections, solar flares, these types of phenomena. And he modeled what you would see in the sky, thinking, for instance, in terms of the aurora borealis, northern lights, the southern lights, but when you have a major solar outburst with electrically charged particles interacting with our atmosphere, coming from the sun, they come and interact with the atmosphere, you get very distinctive figure-like 
shapes in the sky that look like dancing people. They look like uh, basically stick figures, hands, uh, cylinders, uh, strings of cylinders, it looks like, in the sky. And these were described even in 1859 during the Carrington event, uh, which was a major solar event from a human perspective, very small for an astrophysical perspective. Dr. Peratt found that petroglyphs around the world were recording these ancient, in ancient times when people saw this in the sky during a solar outburst. Katie put together, for instance, that the Rongo Rongo script, this previously uninterpreted script from Easter Island, this remote Pacific island, that it was demonstrating, it was illustrating exactly the same thing. And this was absolutely key to my research, to our research, because all of a sudden, in a flash, this was just after we had come back from Easter Island in 2010, in a flash, I realized that this was such an important discovery, not just for connecting solar activity to Rongo Rongo, and that the Rongo Rongo script was really had its origins in being a record of solar activity, but solar activity was the key to what ended the last ice age. It was a key to what brought down these early civilizations, Gobekli Tepe and the builders of the original Sphinx before the end of the last ice age. That solar activity, it turns out, is so key to what is happening on Earth. And not just in terms of, you know, everyone knows the sun uh, shines in the sky and brings life, etc., but on a bigger scale, and that the sun can bring genuine catastrophe and Earth changes, as well as being, of course, very beneficial. So I just use this as one example where she made this connection, incredibly important connection, and my point is not just that it is a connection specifically with Rongo Rongo, but it opened up a much, much bigger and deeper picture. Indeed, it does. Makes And it makes total sense now. I mean, I remember when I first heard you and, and re- listened to her about this before, I had some problems with that for a while. Uh, because being an artist, I kept looking at those uh, things uh, that were up in the sky at that particular time. And um, I, I could see what they, you were talking about. But uh, I'm a very stubborn person. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's good. <laughs> I I know, but a lot of people don't like that. They like you to be softer about all oh, and just, oh, yes, of course, that's possible. Uh, you know, it, it just kind of in a certain sense reminds me, and we're going to touch on this later on, the comparison of your book in comparison to um, Temple's book, uh, which the only thing better about his book is it's 20 pages longer, and that's, <laughs> that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> We'll get to that much later in in our interview. Yeah. But but I think what you just brought up is very important because I'm skeptical about everything. I'm skeptical when mm-hmm. I uh, put things together in my own mind, and a lot of times I don't want to talk about them for a while because I really want to build up the evidence. I really want to look at things. And um, I was even skeptical about this at first, but when you start looking at it, it becomes so compelling, and there's so much evidence along these lines, and it starts to put everything together, and it all becomes a bigger picture that is comprehensible 
and make sense. So one of the themes that I'd like to stress is with the second edition, and that's what we're talking about now, the second uh, revised and expanded condition of Forgotten Civilization, which now has the new subtitle, New Discoveries on the Solar-Induced Dark Age. I, I, ha- I want to try to put it this way. I was confident with what I was proposing in 2012 in the book, but I am orders of magnitude more confident now because in the intervening eight, nine years between writing the first edition and now working on it with Katie and all the new discoveries and information that's come out, it reinforces it so much uh, that this is the right path. This is, we're on to um, the correct analysis. Well, I have the same kind of problems in a certain sense in my life because I don't like to jump at certain things, especially uh, with uh, so new paradigm stuff, all kinds of new paradigm stuff going all over the place. Uh, and But we'll talk a little bit about that later. So this new revised and expanded uh, edition of your book, Forgotten Civilization, just came out a few days ago. And the new subtitle, as you noted, is The New Discoveries on Solar-Induced Dark Age. What's that all about? Well, this, see, this is very interesting. One of my contentions, and I developed this in the first edition, but even more so now in the second edition, is that we have on Earth, we had on Earth a cycle, what I call cycle of civilization, that precedes, is much more ancient, was much more ancient than the current civilization that we know of today. So let me explain. Standard archaeologists, standard historians, conventional status quo academics, they say that civilization began somewhere in the period of 4,000 to 3,000 B.C. A classic example of civilization occurring, being founded, originating around that time is dynastic Egypt, 3100, 3200 B.C., uh, depending on you know where you want to draw the line, or in Sumer, in uh, southern Mesopotamia or in China around the same time, that civilization began about 5,000 years ago. That's what I refer to as the modern. I'm a geologist, so 5,000 years can be considered modern for me. That's the current cycle of civilization or the modern cycle of civilization. civilization. But my early work on the Sphinx, as you know, indicated that there were much more sophisticated people than anyone had expected much earlier in time. And developing this further through the years, collecting more evidence, especially with Gebekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, we now have absolutely firm evidence that there was true civilization, including, I believe they were literate, before the end of the last Ice Age, before 9700 B.C., when the Ice Age ends. So this was an earlier cycle of civilization, but it was absolutely devastated by the catastrophes, the climate change, the earthquake, the torrential flooding, uh, uh, high radiation levels because of solar outbursts at the end of the last Ice Age, that civilization was decimated 
driven back to a much more primitive um, period, or a primitive um, status, should we say. They lost a lot of their technology, apparently. They were no longer building monumental megalithic structures. They went into a dark age. Indeed. So Katie and I would often talk about this over dinner or when we were discussing things or on site, and it was very awkward to always be talking about the period between the end of the last ice age and the reemergence of civilization 6,000 years later. And Katie came up brilliantly with the acronym SIDA, S-I-D-A, which stands for Solar Induced Dark Age. And it's sort of ironic, the sun, which brings light, the sun, which we are totally dependent on, can also produce a dark age when it goes through an agitated state and is uh, disruptive to life on Earth, has solar outbursts, throws out um, you know, charged particles at the uh, Earth and the other planets as well. It can cause, the sun can cause incredible devastation through... Uh, civilization to a tailspin, so that is what we refer to as Siddha, or the solar-induced dark age, and temporally it's the period from the end of the last ice age, 9700 B.C., to the reemergence of civilization, not the origin, but the reemergence around 35-3700 B.C., so it lasts just about 6,000 years. So that's the solar-induced dark age that I'm now talking about, and this, I think, is a concept that is uh, catching on because, it, in my opinion, it makes a lot of sense. Well, we'll be talking a lot about that in the uh, hour to come here on 21st Century Radio with our guest, Dr. Robert Schock, Ph.D. Hi, I'm Michael A. Cremo. I'm author of the book Forbidden Archaeology, and I'm very happy to be on 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. It is a fascinating show, intellectually groundbreaking, presenting alternative points of view on all areas of science and popular culture. Okay, now back to our guest, Dr. Robert Schock. You still with us there? I'm here. I'm sorry that I'll say um, my desire to understand and, and know everything that I read, I write all over by books. I've got... <laughs> I, you, you, you know, that's one place where you and I differ. I, I'm, I don't write on my books at all. <laughs> well, it's something that that. But I, you know what I do? Um, I, I, it may be that we don't differ that much. I sit with a pad when I write, uh, when I read, mm-hmm. and I write notes on a pad. I say page such and such, and I write notes about it. Page such and such, and I write notes about it. <laughs> well, I do. I do that too. You're not the only person. <laughs> okay, you do that. <laughs> plus, you write on the book. <laughs> That's right. Well, okay. Now, your work in recent years has included detailed analysis of our sun, and we touched a little bit on that. How has the activity of the sun fluctuated over the last fifteen thousand years? Well, this is uh, very interesting because the sun was historically one of the last things that astronomers and astrophysicists and geologists and geophysicists thought was relatively stable. And it turns out that our sun, 
and this should not have been unexpected, is just another star in the sky, not to put our sun down, but our sun is a fairly typical star, and what we're looking at and what we're learning about stars, including the sun, is that they go through periods of what I'll call instability and stability, disequilibrium and equilibrium. And I am more and more convinced right now that our sun actually has a number of periodicities. We know that has a number of periodicities. For instance, sunspot cycles on 11-year and 22-year uh, cycle. Uh, there are various periodicities in the sun on the order of uh, centuries and millennia. But one of the periodicities, I believe at this point is probably on the order of 13,000 or so years where the sun goes through periods of agitation disequilibrium for a couple of millennia, so a couple, two, three thousand years, then it stabilizes and is relatively stable for uh, another eight, ten thousand years, and then it goes through disequilibrium again. So that is one pattern that we're starting to pick up and find, and there are other stars in analogy, and I talk about this um, in Forgotten Civilization, that go through this same type of periodicity. So where this ties in with our previous discussion was that the sun was incredibly unstable at the end of the last ice age. And when I talk about the end of the last ice age, let's go back about 15,000 years, the end of the last ice age is actually 9,700 B.C. or 11,700 years ago. That's based on very detailed data from ice cores and sediment cores, particularly, particularly Greenland ice cores. So we actually have a very good uh, fit on this, a very good fix on this. And when I say 9,700 B.C., we're talking within with accuracy of just within a couple of years at most. It's, it really is about 9,700 B.C. And that's when we see incredible warming on the surface of the Earth and changes and melting of glaciers, etc. torrential rains, because when you melt the glaciers, you put all this at, uh, moisture into the atmosphere, it comes down as torrential rains. And we can talk about this more, what happened exactly at the end of the last ice age. But let's go back a little further, go back 1,200 years further to 10,900 B.C. or 13,900 years ago, and that is the beginning of a cooling spell. And before that, go back a few more thousand years, the Earth had slowly been warming up. It was coming out of an ice age. Then we have quite suddenly geologically it gets colder again. It goes back into really bitter ice age conditions. And then 1,200 years later, there's a sudden warming, which is incredible. And it happens literally based on the ice core data within a week or two, a few weeks. That's the best resolution we have in the ice core data. The reality, as far as I can determine, is it literally happened within a week or essentially overnight. Uh, with a major solar outburst. So coming back to the sun, this 1,200-year period, 10,900 B.C. to 9,700 
BC is known as the Younger Dryas. So that's the terminal ice age, the terminal period in the ice age. And a lot of listeners may have heard something about a comet ending the last ice age. I'm here to say that I don't believe there was any comet involved, uh, period. I believe what we are talking about is solar activity bracketing that 1,200 years. And all the evidence that's been proposed for a comet can be explained or is even better explained by changes in solar activity. Because what happens when you have a major solar outburst, in some cases, plasma, electrically charged particles given off by the sun can literally hit the surface of the Earth. They can even gouge out craters, it, uh, we now believe. Uh, they can vitrify rock. They can cause what are known as glassy spurials. So you have, for instance, vitrified, which means it turns to glass, rock on the surface of the Earth covering huge expanses of area. The way people can visualize this as if, would be as if huge lightning bolts were coming down and hitting the Earth in certain areas. It would cause wildfires. It would cause melting of surface rock. It would cause literal incineration. It would cause uh, uh, huge um, icebergs and uh, glaciers to melt virtually instantaneously. It would raise radiation levels on the surface of the earth and we have evidence of all of this it would it also cause earthquake activity to increase and we now have modern evidence that even in the present day solar activity can trigger earthquake activity stresses that have already built up in the rock can be triggered by what seem like relatively small variations of electromagnetic fields which are caused by the sun. So getting back to the last 15,000 years, I'm now convinced that what happened to begin the Younger Dryas' cooling period was a solar outburst. It may seem counterintuitive at first, but what happened geologically as I piece it together and based on various new research that has come out just in the last two, three, four years, there were huge glacial lakes in North America. They were being held back by ice dams, by huge dams formed by chunks of ice. Solar outbursts, 10,900 B.C., melts those ice dams, dumps huge amounts of cold, fresh water into the North Atlantic, changes circulation patterns. We now have evidence that at that time circulation patterns changed dramatically, that we had uh, uh, lake outbursts. The researchers who have worked on this have even used that term, not even thinking about the sun, but they talked about how there were lake outbursts at that time. This would all be due to solar activity. So ironically, the sun melting these dams caused the earth to go into a colder period for about 1,200 years. There were probably smaller solar outbursts in between, and then a huge one in 9700 B.C. redistributed circulation patterns, put a huge influx of energy into the climatic system, 
and uh, melted the final glaciers, caused torrential rains, sea level rises, high radiation levels on the surface of the earth, and brought the Ice Age to an end and brought the civilizations of the time that we spoke about before the break down. Now, going beyond 9700 B.C., what has been found, and this to me is incredible confirmation, uh, there has been a lot of work on, again, ice cores, sediment cores, and also dendrochronology. So looking at tree rings and looking at isotopes of carbon and other types of isotopes in tree rings, which are also indicators of solar activity because when the sun is very agitated and very active, it forms certain isotopes in the atmosphere that get incorporated into the sedimentary layers that get incorporated into tree rings. And since the first edition of Forgotten Civilization, numerous episodes of agitation of the sun have been documented even in the last 8,000 or so years. Mm. These are not as big as what happened at the end of the last Ice Age or at the beginning of the Younger Dryas, but we're now finding that even in the last eight or 10,000 years, the sun has not been as stable as we thought. So, again, it argues that the sun is a star that goes through these periods. I just want to give some quick dates so, for instance, this is um, very solid data. The sun had a little outburst in 5480 B.C., another one 3372 B.C., another in 1814 B.C., another in 660 B.C., a major one in 774, 775 A.D., which is now known as the Charlemagne event, the Charlemagne event of a solar outburst, because that's when Charlemagne, the famous emperor, uh, was alive, and another one, 993 A.D., another one, uh, 1052, etc. So all this data is now coming in that what I had been more speculative about in 2012 is, in fact, the case. The sun is not a particularly stable star. It's just another star that goes through these periods. And what's very um, telling is that the sun right now is showing more instability and more agitation, essentially, than it has since the end of the last ice age. So I think we're going into a period when the sun becomes really unstable. And before I forget, I should mention one more thing. I know I'm talking a lot, but we now are finding that the sun can, in some cases, apparently, not our star-like, um, sun-like stars can give off not just where known as coronal mass ejections or solar flares, but in some cases they can shed essentially their shell mm. of uh, electrons and protons, and they have solar proton events. And in some cases, this material flying off in all directions from the sun, it can be called a mi micronova. The term mini-nova or micronova micro is now being used to express how this sun can throw off a sheath of um, highly charged particles and even perhaps chunks of matter that actually congeal and may hit as what we would consider impactors on the surface of the Earth. So 
the sun is, I think we have to start viewing the sun as very different uh, than it has traditionally been considered. And if I could bring in one last thing. Oh, of course. You know, you I've worked in Egypt for so long. The Egyptians always thought of the sun as being having two personalities. One is the sun can be incredibly destructive, or the sun can be incredibly beneficial. And I think they literally knew what they were talking about. Well, we're going to take our next break here, and when we come back, let's talk about the ramifications for humanity through the ages as we're going through this. Obviously, it's going to change some things. This is Carl Lerberger, author of Secrets of Ancient America, www.newhistoryofamerica.com, and I invite you to continue listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Geronimus. And welcome back to 21st Century Radio with our guest, Dr. Robert Schock. Dr. Schock, what have been the ramifications for humanity through the ages, especially with what you've just related to us over the past half hour? Well, how do I want to say it? I hate to be sound negative, but uh, what's happened is that I believe certainly we had an earlier cycle of civilization that was uh, really brought down or... um, thrown back to a earlier, you know, more primitive stage, if we mm-hmm. could call it that, yeah. with uh, what happened at the end of the last ice age with the solar outburst. And this uh, level of civilization had been reached if it had not been um, sort of thrown back to a more primitive state. You have to wonder where we might be now. But this is, this is one of the things that we have to think about that I think we have to learn from, that we have to uh, take into account. I think it's worth maybe talking about that earlier cycle of civilization a little bit if we could. Go ahead. Let's start. Uh, because it really began, so this really goes back to my work on the Sphinx and the water weathering on the Sphinx, as you and I have talked about many times, but in case some people are new to the subject, I first got involved with ancient civilizations by looking at the Great Sphinx of Egypt. And this was by the invitation of our mutual friend who unfortunately died a bit over three years ago, passed away about a little over three years ago, John Anthony West. He invited me to go to Egypt with him and study the Sphinx and the geological features of the Sphinx. Bottom line, I discovered, or I confirmed, I should say, because he had already suspected this based on his own work and the work of the late Schwaller de Lubitsch, that the Sphinx was, yes, eroded by water, not by wind and sand. So it must be, the origins of the Sphinx must date back to pre-Sahara conditions, and we talk about this at great length in the book Origins of the Sphinx. And I just wanted to clarify, Origins of the Sphinx came out in 2017, and that's a book that I co-authored with Robert Bouval, my uh, colleague Robert Bouval, who some people may recognize the name. He also uh, developed the Orion Correlation Theory that Orion, the belt stars of Orion in the sky correlate with the three major pyramids on the ground at Giza. All of this, and this is where I'm going with it, all of this indicates 
that there were sophisticated people with sophisticated culture and technology well before the traditional date of 2500 B.C. for the Great Sphinx, well before the traditional day of 25-2600 B.C. for the pyramids on the plateau, especially the Great Pyramid. We have uh, now acknowledged hieroglyphic writings that talk about the, the Egyptians at that time, 5,000, 4,500, 5,000 years ago, talking about that there was an earlier civilization. There was an earlier period of sophistication, which they referred to as Zeptepe. They actually had a name for it. Uh, this, I would say, was the Ice Age, pre-end of the Ice Age, civilization that was brought to its knees. Uh, metaphorical knees by the catastrophes at the end of the last ice age. So that was my first foray into it. A lot of people in the academic community said this was crazy, this is insane. Uh, just because the ancient Egyptians talked about an earlier civilization that preceded them by thousands of years, that doesn't mean anything. They would just make up old stories left and right, and you know, mythology doesn't mean anything, and their legends, don't, they don't mean anything. Uh, but I had the physical evidence, and I think that's very important. It certainly is. Then, then Gebekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey is discovered, or it had actually been discovered much earlier, but no one knew anything about it. It had not been excavated. It had been misdated. It was considered to be very recent, you know, Greco-Roman times initially, or maybe even Byzantine times, and that was excavated by the late Klaus Schmidt. He began excavate in the 1990s after you and I had our first conversation about all of this. When we had our first conversations, it had n no one even knew about Gebekli Tepe because no one had put a shovel in the ground to start excavating it. It turns out that Gebekli Tepe is incredibly sophisticated, before 9700 B.C., and something that I talk about in the book is that archaeologists recognize true civilization, what they consider true civilization, by three major attributes. This is things that you can recognize in the archaeological and historical record. One, megalithic, monumental carvings and structures in stone. We have that with the Great Sphinx. We have that at Gebekli Tepe, because you have these huge stone pillars that are beautifully carved. Secondly, they say to have a civilization, you need to have literacy. You have to have writing. And I make the case in the book, and this is based on work that uh, was first pointed out to me by my colleague Manu Saifzadeh, Dr. Manu Saifzadeh, and we wrote a paper on it and explored it further, that some of the carvings on the pillars at Gebekli Tepe, it's not just random designs, it's not just pretty you know, patterns, it actually represents writing. And that we have writing on the pillars of Gebekli Tepe, which indicates they were a literate society. In fact, one of the words we translated was essentially the word for God, but interestingly, they also tie God to the sun and to plasma, electrical plasma coming from the sun. They seem to have made a lot of these connections in a very sophisticated way uh, before 
they were devastated by the end of the events of the end of the last ice age. Uh, the third attribute of true civilization, according to standard conventional thinking, is that you have cities. And the archaeologists have always said, well, there's no cities going back, you know, 12,000 years, 10,000 B.C., because we're talking the period 10,000 B.C. Uh, when I first started talking about the Sphinx going back to such a remote period, they said that was impossible. People were not civilized. They were just hunters and gatherers. They didn't build cities. They didn't carve monumental stone structures. Well, with Gebekli Tepe, I believe that one of the cities of the Gebekli Tepe people is still inhabited to this day. It is a city of Urfa in southeastern Turkey, which is not very far from the site of Gebekli Tepe. It's also known as Shanli Urfa or Sanli Urfa. Uh, but it's a traditional city of Urfa. It's a place where the Judeo-Christian Islamic patriarch Abraham supposedly came from, but that was thousands of years later, um, after the end of the last Ice Age. It's a holy site. It's a large, thriving city to this day. What's interesting is whenever they do major excavations, they build a new parking garage, or they have an urban renewal project, and they dig down, what do they often find? They find beautiful stone sculptures in some cases. I illustrate one in the book known as Urfa Man, mm-hmm. who is this incredible life-size sculpture of a very, very modernistic-looking man, if you would. It doesn't look like some caveman or anything. Um, when does he date? He dates back to the end of the last Ice Age. He oh, dates back to 9700 B.C. or so, Gebekli Tepe time. My point is that they run into this strata on a regular basis, but of course they can't excavate it because this is a modern thriving city and a holy city on top of everything else, a city of prophets. So where is the city of the Gebekli Tepe people? I think one of the cities is modern Urfa, and this may be one a site that's been literally inhabited as a city for the last 12,000 years. So it's not that the city doesn't exist. It's still, still being there. used. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, but just so, and, and you know, this is something too that to me we have credible continuity with our ancestors, with our forebears, and I think that's something important to keep in mind. I, I think about the people that came before us. Katie and I talk about it all the time. What did they go through? What can we learn from them? Um, uh, you know, okay, we're in a pandemic now, but they went through even worse things, uh, and we can learn from their strength and their vigor. That's for sure. And I understand that you have found evidence of major ancient lightning strikes that represents electro, electrical plasma strikes. And I just told was told by my balls, actually, we're getting ready to take a break. So I guess I shouldn't have asked that question. Oh, we can talk about that maybe after the break. Yes, right on the Giza Plateau. Okay. Uh, what we have is evidence of lightning strikes. I'm now convinced on the Giza Plateau, including right around and possibly on, probably on the Sphinx. We should talk about that after the break. We will do that. But we got to keep going right now. So there's no break right now. Oh, okay. Oh, we we're got not a, going. To... We got a minute to go, my ball says. Okay. I got to do well, what Let you me say. start, and then we'll be able to pick up afterwards. Something that is discussed in one of the texts 
from ancient Egypt. When I say ancient Egypt, dynastic Egypt, it's known as the Inventory Stella. I illustrated it in Forgotten Civilization. Uh, and it has a text that talks about the Sphinx, uh, the Sphinx having existed in the time of Khufu. Khufu is the pharaoh who supposedly built the Great Pyramid, but there's lots of evidence that he didn't build it. He basically adopted it and rebuilt it, just as the dynastic Egyptians adopted and recarved the head of the Sphinx. So this gets into what was the original Sphinx, and there is evidence on the Sphinx and around the Sphinx and on these the inventory stella describing how the Sphinx in very, very ancient times was hit by lightning. We've got to stop right here and take our balls. We'll be right back. And our guest this evening is Dr. Robert Schock, of course, talking about his, his and his wife's book, Forgotten Civilization, New Discoveries on the Solar Solar-induced dark age. But we were approaching plasma strikes. No. Let's see. Lightning strikes. We were talking about lightning strikes on that hit the Sphinx. Is yeah, that... exactly. Exactly. That's where yeah. we left off. Okay. Let's start there then because that's a good place. And you, you, are, you are not incorrect because essentially plasma strikes and lightning strikes, we can think of them as similar types of phenomena where plasma electrically charged particles are being driven down to the surface of the Earth from a solar outburst and they would manifest themselves essentially like huge, huge, huge lightning strikes um, when I say lightning strikes, atmospheric lightning strikes. But either way, you're talking about charged particles uh, coming down, hitting uh, the surface of the Earth. When it hit this great sphinx, did it crack it in any way? Yes, there's actually, this is, um, uh, it may have um, caused damage directly to the great sphinx. There's a crack in the uh, back it's been known as a, a fault or a, a, a crack that has been recognized for a very long time that essentially separates the rump from the uh, fore portion of the Sphinx, from the front of the Sphinx. It's sometimes referred to as a fissure. It may have a natural, maybe a natural geologic feature in the rocks, but was exacerbated, I suspect, by the Sphinx being struck by lightning. And the Sphinx, I'm convinced, was struck by lightning. What we have on the Giza Plateau, when I say the Sphinx, I'm really referring to the entire Giza Plateau now, we have evidence that the Sphinx and the Plateau was struck by lightning. We have physical evidence in the form of what I'm convinced is vitrified rock. This is rock that was subjected to incredibly intense uh, uh, heat and pressure, but particularly heat, it would flash melt essentially and then vitrify. It recongeals, it turns to glass, but it's not glass that the normal, typical person would recognize as glass. It's more a scoria, or uh, if you ever have been around uh, where they smelt metal, the uh, remains of um, uh, from smelting metal, basically rock, it looks sort of bubbly, charred, that type of thing. And you find this on the Giza Plateau. It's actually first pointed out to me. 
a few years ago by a couple of my Egyptian colleagues, Yosef Ayan and uh, uh, Mohammed Ibrahim. And it was the first place they showed it to me uh, was around the second pyramid. And we were walking around and they said, well, what is this? What is this strange, you know, sort of black, black um, area in the limestone bedrock? I must have probably walked over that many times mm-hmm. before over the years as I've been going back and forth from to Egypt, but you don't necessarily see things as you're, if you're not attuned to them, if you're not looking for that. You know, instead of looking up at the great uh, second pyramid, um, which is normally what I'd be doing, I'm not necessarily looking down the ground, and, you know, there's so many things to see, but they pointed out to me, I said, right away, I mean, that looks like vitrification, because I had started studying solar outbursts and what you would expect. So when you look at the plateau, you start to see this, this actual physical evidence. It is before the dynastic structures. Dynastic structures from 5,000-plus years ago have been built over it. This vitrification, you can see it inside of the well shafts. It goes deep into the bedrock, and it sort of forms tendrils or uh, like um, a dendritic pattern. And if you've ever seen how lightning, atmospheric lightning, strikes something, it forms these tendrils or these uh, these very typical patterns. And this is exactly what you see on the plateau, and it goes all the way. We've been able to trace, Katie, and I've traced it from the second pyramid down uh east to the Sphinx and to the area of the Sphinx. Now, there's something called the Inventory Stella, which I'd been aware of for a very long time but didn't always quite know what to make of it. The Inventory Stella was found on the Giza Plateau. It's an ancient Egyptian inscription on a limestone block, a stella carved out of limestone. It goes back, and I don't disagree with the Egyptologists on this, it probably goes back five, six, seven hundred B.C. or something like that. So it's relatively recent from that perspective, but what it records is a much earlier text, and having studied it carefully, I'm convinced that it actually records a much earlier text, which the priests of 2,500 years ago, let's put it about 2,500 years ago, said was a text that goes back thousands of years earlier. When you look at the grammar and the uh, hieroglyphic writing and whatnot, and this is something else that I discussed in Forgotten Civilization based on work that I did with my colleague Manu Saifzadeh, analyzing the actual text, it is very convincing that, yes, this is a copy of a genuine inscription that goes back well over 4,000 years ago, 4,500, 4,600 years ago, and it talks at that time about the Sphinx already being very old and having been struck by lightning even earlier. Uh, So we have not only the physical evidence, but we have the textual evidence of the ancient Egyptians themselves that, yes, the Sphinx had been struck by lightning, and the pharaoh Khufu, or Cheops, 
had even gone to visit the Sphinx and see the damage that had been caused by this ancient lightning, which Mm -hmm. will now translate as not atmospheric lightning, but solar outbursts, the result of the solar outbursts and the plasma discharges literally hitting the plateau and hitting the pre-existing structures at that time that had gone back to that earlier period on the plateau, he went and he visited and he looked at the, quote, lightning bolt or the thunderbolt. It also is referred to as a thunderbolt. Well, you don't, thunderbolts don't really survive, but what does survive is the remains of the vitrification, the charred rock, the vitrification, which is to be seen to this day. So I think that that's what he was looking at. And they talk about how he repaired the Sphinx. Well, if you look at the Sphinx, you can see that, yes, it was repaired in dynastic times. Even Zai Hawass um, has uh, argued this, that it was repaired in old kingdom dynastic times. This makes no sense unless it's a much older structure originally, a much older construction, a much older statue originally. So it all starts to fit together. Uh, Something else I want to mention here is that why is the Giza Plateau sacred and special? Why is it held in such reverence by the ancient Egyptians? I think it's in part because they knew this is where the plasma had touched down. This is where solar outbursts had touched down. It made it a sacred site. The very fact that literally the sun in the sky had touched the earth at this spot. Uh, We have other places now. For instance, in Scotland, it's been um, documented by other researchers that an ancient site was uh, another place where um, lightning strikes had occurred, and these are recorded in the rocks. I would call them solar outbursts we recorded. So people considered these sites where the sun had actually touched down, I'm speculating, as sacred sites. So that's another aspect to it. Another aspect is that the head has been recarved, and you and I have talked about that many times. The head is too small for the body on the Sphinx. It's been recarved as a human head, as a human face. That's what uh, makes it a Sphinx now with a lion's body and the head of a person. But that head is too small. That's a dynastic head. I've contended that ever since the 1990s, because geologically you can see that it's uh, much later um, recarving of the head. I don't want to say addition because it's not physically added to it. It's the older head recarved. We, I speculated for a long time that it was uh, lion's head originally. We now have good hieroglyphic evidence. Again, something I worked on with my colleague Manu today, and I talk about in Forgotten Civilization, that yes, it was a lion originally, the Sphinx, but not a male lion, it was a female lion, mm-hmm. a lioness guarding a chamber, which Thomas DeBecky, the geophysicist, and myself found through seismic techniques. So all of this evidence starts to tie together. Also, the end of the last ice age was the age of uh, Leo, and... Um, Here we have the lion on the plateau, the lioness, the female lion, who on the vernal equinox would see her male consort, if you would, the male lion, Leo in the sky. So to me, 
again, you know, when you have one or two threads and they're interesting, that's one thing. But when you have all these different aspects that tie together and form a comprehensive whole, to me that is very, very compelling. Well, the Sphinx has always been compelling to me. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I painted a bus that went up to Woodstock that had the Sphinx on it, the Great Sphinx. As a matter of fact, we had to recreate that bus that went up to Woodstock and did it again. And the reason why I chose the Sphinx was because just symbolically on, on some levels, one level that I'd like to interpret it on was the the Sphinx could be used symbolically from the standpoint of the Sphinx. The human head deals with humanity and that we are linked in some ways to the Sphinx in the sense that its head is more important than sometimes the rest of the body. That's the way I put an emphasis on that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I think what you're saying, and, and let me interject something here and see, see if you would agree with this. I think in many ways the Sphinx incorporates all these different aspects. I think the most powerful symbols have mult, can have multiple meanings, yes, and indeed. they can actually represent things that are so difficult to put in words. Uh, and one thing I see with the Sphinx, the Great Sphinx and the concept of the Sphinx, is it combines the aspects of humanity with nature, with mm-hmm. the cosmos, uh, with the divine, with the sun. Uh, and this is something that Katie and I develop in the book, that we are, we are very much connected with the cosmos, we're very much connected with the sun, and... Uh, uh, the bigger universe. We um, actually talk about how the sun is primarily hydrogen. We now know that in a modern sense, but that uh, hydrogen can encode information. And uh, the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, actually thought that when we die, we go back to the stars. We go back to the sun. And I don't want to go off on too many tangents here, but there's evidence now that consciousness uh, is well beyond just human humanity, well beyond just organisms as we think of them. That's for sure. Uh, so to me, it sort of, the Sphinx incorporates so much and ties so many things together. It certainly I guess does. that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, and, and the fact now that I, we know that it was a, it was a, yes, a female. Yes, uh, a female. It's funny because I always felt to me from my very first time visiting Egypt. The first time I went to Egypt, and I've been there I don't know how many times since, dozens of times since, but my first trip with was with John Anthony West in um, 1990, so it's now been over 30 years since I've been going back and forth to Egypt. And my first encounter with, with the Sphinx was I always felt it was a she. Mm-hmm. she it, the Sphinx has always been female to me. That overall female, sort of androgynous to uh, female energy. Now, now that we're at the Sphinx, oops, we got to take a break. Okay, after our break, uh, let's. Uh, I'd like to compare your work with Mr. Temple. Is that would that be all right? 
No, we can talk about that. Okay. Uh, of course, he's, you know, he's got an edge on you having 22 more pages in his book. <laughs> You've got 523, I think he's got. But, but it's <laughs> the quality of the pages, not the, I know. the number. I know. I'm just, I'm just being an American right now. All right, we're going to take, take his break on 21st Century Radio with the guest, Dr. Robert Schock. Hello, this is Edgar Evans Casey, the son of Edgar Casey, the famous psychic. This is 21st Century Radio, and I'm speaking with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Gosh, how many years ago was that? But 20 years ago? Edgar Evans Casey? Oh, it's good to hear from him again. And uh, as a matter of fact, Dr. Robert Schock mentions Edgar Casey a number of times in the book. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to talk about that right now. However, uh, would you please compare your conclusions about the Sphinx with the conclusions reached by Robert Temple in his book, with Olivia Temple called The Mystery of the Sphinx. And they're both published by Inner Traditions International. Well, you want me to talk about Robert oh, Temple sure, and his sure. um, there, non-work? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot of problems with it. And even just there's talk- a lot of problems, and it's very interesting. Um, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I've known many publishers. They've often told me in various fields that they like to have uh, books and they like to have books that don't necessarily agree with each other, et cetera, because then they have, you know, they sell books on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. And you're right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, their their business is to sell books, not worry about um, one agenda or another in some cases. But I'm not talking about agendas. I'm just talking about real science and real evidence. And I include, as you know, an appendix in Forgotten Civilization, was the Great Sphinx surrounded by a moat? And this appendix is devoted to debunking, if I could use that term, and I hate that term. Let me let me not use that term. Let me say correcting Robert Temple's um, unfounded assertions and mistakes. And I have to be very blunt because Robert Temple's book is um, good for one thing, and that, in my opinion, is the illustrations. He has old archival photographs, that type of thing, in the book. And um, it may be interesting for that, but otherwise he uh, honestly doesn't really know what he's uh, talking about. And since you brought it up, I have to be very honest. He just doesn't understand the geology. He doesn't understand the iconography, etc. He contends... So I put in a nutshell, and this is from his book. He contends that the Sphinx was originally Anubis, the uh, jackal, if you would, or dog-headed, uh, hound-headed uh, god of dynastic Egypt, Anubis before it was recarved into a Sphinx. I contend, as we just talked about, that it was a lion, and specifically a female lion, a lioness. He thinks it was Anubis. He thinks that it was surrounded by a moat, more or less that the area around the Sphinx was filled with water, and that's why you have the water weathering, not because of uh, ancient rain, as he likes to call it, not because the Sphinx is older. So he claims that the Sphinx was originally Anubis and that it just simply dates to dynastic times. Uh, so this uh, just really does, and to use a really bad pun, it does not hold water. It does not <laughs> hold water. <laughs> when you look at it um, metaphorically, it does not hold water. But I'm a geologist, and so I'm going to be very literal. When you look at the plateau, to um, be able to hold water 
in what's known as the Sphinx enclosure, you would have to seal that up completely. You would have to maybe use tile and cement, etc., to seal it up. And you would have to build huge retaining walls, meters and meters high. There is no evidence of this whatsoever. I mean, the, the limestone of the Giza Plateau is very porous. It's um, full of cavities and underground caverns and uh, whatnot. It literally will leak like a sieve. Uh, you will have to fill it in. Now, if you fill it in and build a tile, essentially a tile swimming pool around the Sphinx, then you're not going to have the erosion. You're not going to have the erosion on the walls, which is what he's basing his whole theory on, which is the same thing I've been working on for years. He just took my work and then tried to reinterpret it. But um, am I making sense? Of course to you? you are, because that's uh, that yeah. Was... I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, furthermore, it's not Anubis. It can't be Anubis. The body doesn't look like Anubis. He claims, for instance, that the body has a flat back, and well, Anubis has a flat back. And if you look in uh, Forgotten Civilization, the new edition, uh, Katie and I include a picture of Anubis in another context and on page 300. Yes, Anubis has a flat back, but that has nothing to do with the back, flat back of the current Sphinx. The reason it has a flat back at the moment is because it was highly weathered and it had hit a bedding plane. The weather was weathered down to a flat bedding plane. This is basic geology. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing to do with it once being Anubis. And if you reconstruct the head as he tried to reconstruct it, the head and the ears of Anubis and the snout of Anubis, I'm not convinced that if you had ever had that much stone there, that it could have supported the weight of the snout uh, projecting out, etc. That particular limestone, knowing the competence of it, I'm also not convinced there was ever that much stone there to have had a head the size he is referring to, but even more telling, the iconography, the Sphinx faces east. It faces the rising sun. Anubis, who who um, looks over the deceased, does not face the rising right. sun. The Anubis faces mm-hmm. west. Uh, <laughs> there are just so many problems. Another problem is, and to be really blunt, he... Maybe he had a lapse of memory when he was writing parts of his book, but he says that I say things which would supposedly support him, and he actually misquotes me and says I say the opposite of what I actually say in my own works, in my own papers, in my own books. He, for instance, talks about how I say that it's more heavily um, eroded on one side and not the other side, when I didn't say that at all. Um, I was talking about subsurface weathering. I don't want to get into a lot of geological details here, but he, he it's There's just so many problems with his theory and the way he presents it and the evidence that he presents. I I don't want to... 
I don't want to go off on too many tangents here. Well, and I think um, you covered but, the most important thing. It, it literally is riddled with holes yes. and riddled with problems and riddled with misinformation and misinterpretations and downright um, misrepresentations. So because not only you, but so many people have asked me about over the years, that's why I felt compelled to include an appendix in Forgotten Civilization, where I try to set things straight. Well, I'm so glad you did. Uh, just the Anubis's head was it for me, because uh, I don't. Uh, I have a. I'm very fond of Anubis, but I don't yeah. believe he has anything to do with the kind of things that we were that that are going on at the Sphinx. And, exactly, and, and, exactly. And that, and that just as you said that, well, that's what I call it the nozzle or the front part of the, the, the. Uh, yeah, the the, yeah, the, the head. nozzle or the, the the snout, the nose. It couldn't possibly it, hold up. It couldn't. It, yeah, it, it could have fallen not apart. That scale he's talking about. I know those the rock well. I love geology. I, I respect the rocks, but you have to work within the confines of the strength of the rock, etc. And Anubis is not going to be facing east, the rising sun, every morning. Well, well, then the. <laughs> just does that. not work. But the main thing is this whole moat theory, um, just on that basis, it could not hold a moat. Um, and if you had, as I said, lined it like you would a swimming pool in modern times to hold water, then the erosion wouldn't occur. Don't you think that, that he said that because it endears him to the people uh such as Zahi Hawass and others? Oh, apps. Well, I don't want to put motives, give him motives, but let me put it more generally. Saying what other people want to hear, other people mm -hmm. in authority, I think all of us know this, that does endear you to them. And uh, I was reading an article recently, actually Katie and I were discussing this recently, an article that was being uh, where an academic, a Ph.D., was discussing how archaeologists working in various countries around the world, via Egypt or Turkey or India or Indonesia, etc., they will very often not say anything that would go against what the authorities want to hear. Um, and they will sometimes sort of, uh, how should we say, manipulate their data or at least give it a spin. Mm -hmm. That is what the authorities want to hear. And in Egypt right now, uh, the authorities want to hear the conventional story that the Sphinx goes back to 2500 B.C., end of story, uh, and that's it. Yeah. Now, I think, and I've always, you, you personally know, I think, I'm sure you know this. I feel that we need to go on the basis of the evidence, the hardcore evidence. We need to not be worried about what the, quote, jury says, not what the politicians say, but we need to go on the basis of the evidence, and I think ultimately the evidence will prevail, and ultimately, um, you know, the next generation uh, will respect the evidence, including the next generation of leaders and politicians, etc. And I believe with the Sphinx and with my work on the end of the last Ice Age and the new edition of the book, I honestly believe that we are making headway. More and more historians and uh, 
people even inside academia and the depths of academia are starting to at least say, well, maybe it isn't as straightforward as we've always thought. They're starting to look at the Sphinx and say, well, maybe it's not um, Khafre's head. That's the traditional, the tradition yes, that's right. has been that it was the head of Khafre, the builder of the second pyramid. And they're starting to say, well, maybe it's not. Maybe that isn't the original head, etc. That doesn't mean they've, they've jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, shock is right about everything. Uh, but I think we're making inroads by presenting good evidence, good data, and Gebekli Tepe, which is being, was being uh, excavated by Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute, along with the Turkish authorities and the Turkish um, archaeologists, there is no doubt that this is incredibly sophisticated. goes back to this very early period. We'll just use round numbers, 10,000 B.C., and at this point you can't deny it. Yes, some people are trying to make it, quote, more primitive. Oh, they were just hunter-gatherers, etc. But I think we're really on the verge of breaking through uh, with conventional thinking and upturning conventional thinking. So I think we just have to keep Sticking with the data and moving, uh, moving forward. That's how progress is made. That's exactly it. So, so Turkey. I want to mention this: Turkey, where Gebekli Tepe exists, where Te- Gebekli Tepe occurs. When you go to Turkey now, when Katie and I first went to Turkey to see Gebekli Tepe, and this was when, with John Anthony West, he was still. Um, you know, this was well before he got sick and passed away. We all our first trip to see Gebekli Tepe was with John Anthony West. We were amazed at this incredible site, which confirmed that civilization goes back to this, this earlier period. At that time, it was just a site in, you know, the the desert, should we say. I mean, it's very uh, much desert there. It's not as much desert as Egypt, um, not as harsh a desert as Egypt. But, you know, it's just out there. You just drive out, dirt road, no facilities, that type of thing. Since then, the Turkish people and the Turkish government, they realize how important a site this is. They realize how it goes back to this very early period and is incredibly significant. They've um, now covered it over with a beautiful awning, uh, which we illustrate in the new edition of Forgotten mm-hmm. Civilization. Furthermore, they have constructed in Urfa this incredible museum, spent I don't know how much money, at least tens of millions of dollars on this new, beautiful, world-class museum that houses, among other things, artifacts from Gebekli Tepe. So again, I mention this because I think this is, again, part of the now the establishment beginning to acknowledge how important these sites are and how um, how they are really going to change our paradigm. Yes, in the exhibits at the new museum, they still call them hunter gatherers, but I think you know we 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 fight the battles and and we're making headway. They are at least acknowledging how old this site is, how sophisticated at many levels, and how important it. It is. Also, we need to talk about the chamber you discovered with geophysicist Dr. Thomas DeBecky. 
But not right now, because we got to take a break. Is that my boss is giving me directions, of course, and I always follow directions. Well, now, how does uh, the chamber you discovered with geophysicist Thomas Dobecki and the late John Anthony West? Yes. Yeah. It, well, it it relates. I think actually the chamber is. Uh, uh, has renewed importance now to Hot us dog. because now that I believe we understand that there really was this earlier cycle of civilization, one thing that the chamber could include is maybe some kind of records or artifacts or something like this from this earlier cycle of civilization. But let me tie a few things together. Yes, sir. Yes, we were not looking for chambers. We were not looking for buried treasure or anything else like that. This was in the early 1990s, some of our earliest work on the Sphinx. Where it came from is that I wanted subsurface data on the weathering of the rocks. Because as a geologist, if the Sphinx went back to this earlier period, as seemed to be indicated by the surface erosion, and I'm making a distinction now between erosion on the surface and weathering in the subsurface. Weathering is basically various mineralogical changes, that type of thing that occur once the surface of the rock has been exposed. And the surface of the rock was exposed when the Sphinx was carved. It sits, what's in, no, it sits in what's known as enclosure, um, or the Sphinx ditch, because the body of the Sphinx is carved from the actual bedrock. So they had to carve down into the bedrock. For people who have not been there to Egypt and uh, seen the Sphinx firsthand, they might not realize that to see the Sphinx, you actually look, to see the body, you actually look down into the Sphinx enclosure, as you well know. Uh, so what Thomas DeBecky and I were doing was we were using geophysics. Some people think we were using uh, ground-penetrating radar. No, we were using um, another type of geophysics. We were using seismic, low-energy seismic basically hammering on a steel plate to put energy or sound into the rocks, which can then penetrate the rocks to quite a depth, and we pick it back up with geophones, and by essentially the way it bounces around in the rocks, you can model how deep the weathered layers are, this type of thing, and that helped confirm, or not only helped confirm, but absolutely confirm that, yes, the core body of the Sphinx goes back to a much earlier period, calibrating it, and I talk about this in my published papers, calibrating the um, subsurface weathering confirms that goes back to the early 10,000 B.C. period for the origins. So that's why we were doing it. Along the way, we found a couple of chambers under the Sphinx. We found a chamber under the rump of the Sphinx. We found a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. And we found what looks like sort of a collapsed tunnel-type feature that runs from the front of the Sphinx towards the west uh, to the back of the Sphinx and then must continue, you know, beyond into the plateau. And this is actually illustrated with a, a, a subsurface uh, map based on our seismic work, and it's now in the uh, second edition of Forgotten Civilization if people actually want to see uh, a diagram of this. 
But what is important is we found these chambers. It turns out, unbeknownst to us, Zai Hawass and the Egyptian authorities already knew about the chamber under the rump of the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. So it was great confirmation that our seismic techniques were giving good data. Oh. And that's important to me as a scientist. Now, it turns out that under the left front paw, we found a chamber which is even more regular, more gives more indication that it's absolutely carved by humans. It's very regular and rectangular. Zayawas immediately said, oh, there's no chamber there. There's no chamber there. Well, our data was no good. I don't know how it was that our data was no good at the front of the Sphinx, but it was good at the back of the Sphinx when it confirmed what they already knew. Um, so that was a little irony. You see, you see the point there. Sure. Uh, I think a little, how should we say, hypocrisy because I think they had other agendas, which is they didn't particularly want a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. Why? Because unbeknownst to Thomas DeBecky and I, at the time, Edgar Cayce, the great American psychic, had suggested there was a hall of records around the Sphinx and around the paws of the Sphinx. When I look into his actual records, and I've been at the ARE many times since the Association for the Research and Enlightenment at the, um, in Virginia Beach. I've been invited to speak there about my work, et cetera. Uh, before he passed away, I spoke to one of uh, Edgar Casey's sons about this. Again, I knew nothing about this when we first found the chamber. It was only later when they told me that Edgar Casey had predicted this. So he he, Edgar Casey said, was a hall of records, and not only was it hall of records, but from my understanding, he said it was under the right paw of the Sphinx. I interpret that as the right side when you face the Sphinx, which is exactly where we found it. It's the left paw of the Sphinx, but on the right side. Mm-hmm. And to make matters worse for me in academia, he said it had something to do with Atlantis and oh Atlantean civilization. They're going to well, lock Atlantis, you up. If, they're going to lock you up if you do that. Oh God! You I mean, you know, when I was, and you know this because we've talked about this before. When I was first working on the Sphinx in the early '90s, I would not say the word Atlantis because that was like the death kiss um, in academia to say, oh, you were looking for Atlantis or had anything to do with Atlantis. So, you know, from my point of view, it was horrible that Edgar Casey had said anything about this. Uh, But he was basically right that, yeah, how did he know? I don't know. Was it just lucky coincidence? I don't know. But um, uh, he predicted a chamber around that area. Furthermore, it's supposed to be the Hall of Records for Atlanteans or whatever. Well, let's talk about Atlantis. Plato talks about Atlantis. For Plato, Atlantis is an advanced civilization that collapses in essentially a day because of natural catastrophes and, according to Plato's chronology, turned into our modern chronology. When you convert it, that happened about 9600 B.C., to me, that is mm-hmm. essentially the same as the end of the last Ice Age, 9700 right. B.C. I will give him a century to be off by a century, or maybe we're off by 
a century. Um, I think he was off by a century, but he was just talking around numbers. He wasn't even trying to pin it down exactly, Plato. So Atlantis could represent, in fact, for many people, including John Anthony West and myself, because uh, we talked about this quite a bit, Atlantis was more a metaphor, or should we say a catch name, for an earlier advanced civilization before the end of the last ice age. Plato talked about it. We now have evidence for it. Casey said that there was a hall of records um, in the vicinity of the Sphinx that held Atlantean records. Let's translate that into it holds some kind of records or archive that goes back to that earlier advanced civilization. Now, one more piece I want to mention quickly is that with the work of uh, my uh, Dr. Manu Saifzadeh and myself and Robert Bouval uh, interpreting that the Sphinx was originally a lioness, the lioness Mehit or Mehit, um, she was a guardian of an archive. The ancient Egyptians in dynastic times and before 2500 B.C., going back at least 3,000, 3,100 B.C., and among the earliest hieroglyphs, they talk about this statue on the plateau, which was guarding an archive, which I believe is the chamber under the Sphinx. Oh. So it starts to get all tied together, all these what seem to be disparate threads initially tie together that, yes, there really is an archive, a chamber under the Sphinx that Thomas DeBecky and I found seismically. To my best of my knowledge, it has not been entered. There's lots of rumors about that. I won't get into that now. At least there's no... Um, uh, no overt evidence, but I'm convinced it's there, and I'm really curious to see what it holds, and I suspect it goes back to this much earlier period. We're almost out of time, and but I did want to go back just a little bit to tell us about the discovery of the genuine writing some 12,000 years ago at Gobekli Tepe. Tepe, yes. This is very exciting because what you have on... The pillars of Gebekli Tepe and what's known by, it was um, numbered pillar number 18 when they excavated the site at Gebekli Tepe of Enclosure 10. That's the technical name for Enclosure 10, pillar 18. That's one of the most famous ones. We have several illustrations of it in Forgotten Civilization. It has a wonderful belt. It literally has a belt. It's an anthropomorphic pillar human-shaped pillar, it has arms, it has a belt, it has a loincloth. We think, Katie and I think it actually represents Orion in the sky, oh. which were the later Egyptian Egyptians was Osiris. But on the belt, what uh, Manu Seifzadeh and I interpreted as the first word that we recognized based on later Anatolian or Hittite, or they're sometimes known as Luwian, we are out of time. I'm so sorry. 